So if this meeting mind, is being recorded. Cool. Um, I didn't know it did that. But if you want to start off by introducing yourself, talking about your work, and then uh, we can go from there. Okay, well, thanks for uh, having me on. And I'm Bill Mullen. I, for uh, until 2020, I was a professor of American studies at Purdue University. I've worked at a couple of other universities. I actually retired officially from teaching in 2020. So I'm now what Purdue calls Professor Emeritus. I, um, my, my academic work has been mostly around Marxist influence, radical political movements, but also attentive to like uh, the role that race plays both in Marxist theory and in the way people use Marxism, um, race, nationalism, ethnicity, I think all three. And I try have tried throughout my work to, you know, conjoin it to some of my own political work. I have been a member of a couple of socialist organizations in the United States, including the International Socialist Organization from 2009 until it uh, collapsed. Um, I've also since 2009 also been involved in something called the U.S. Act B Organizing Collective, which is the U.S. Campaign for Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. And in my work, especially in my most recent uh, book on James Baldwin, I've paid a lot of attention to Baldwin's own kind of evolution into becoming an anti-Zionist, which I thought was a part of the story and part of the Black liberation story that hasn't been told enough. Um, and I've also done some work both as an activist and a scholar around uh, fascism and the specters of fascism in the US, which is <clears throat> actually what I'm currently working on now. I'm kind of co-authoring a book with um, Janelle Hope, who's an ethnic studies scholar um, at Texas Christian, which we're calling the Black anti-fascist tradition, trying to um, locate exactly how <clears throat> Africans in the diaspora have theorized and organized against fascism. So that's kind of what I do. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And I, I would be very interested in talking about uh, your newest book on James Baldwin and his activism in support of, of Palestine. But before that, I'm, I'm curious just to begin by talking about the book that kind of introduced me to your ideas or to your writing, uh, Afro-Orientalism. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can define Afro-Orientalism more for people listening, and then we can talk more about the theory and, and kind of the other works you, you've produced on that idea. Well, Afro-Orientalism um, started when I was going to teach African-American literature in China. And what I was really arguing in the book is that there's a kind of an independent history of Marxist-influenced thinking by African-Americans and Asians or Asians in the diaspora about how to think about the historical um, parallels and forms of solidarity between, between those two diasporic peoples. And, I, and what I was interested in was the way, it's kind of a classic Marxist dilemma in which you had a bunch of African and Asian radicals trying to use Marxism to think through questions of 
of national liberation struggle in parallel. And Afro-Orientalism on one hand described the solidarities between Blacks and Asians as they are engaged in these joint struggles. And one meaning of the term is that I also argued that African-Americans and Asian-Americans have kind of constantly had their own understanding of how Orientalism functions, both as a device that uh, is meant to divide and rule, to separate Black-Asian struggle. Uh, so that was one meaning of the term. But I also looked a little bit at how, especially in, in the West, even uh, Black radicals sometimes succumb to what I thought of as kind of an Orientalism when they were thinking about and writing about uh, places like China, Japan, and India with which they were not always intimately familiar, but trying to understand. So I th that was kind of the conceptual framework. And then I, I looked at some individual writers who were important to me in this tradition. I started with W.E.B. Du Bois because, you know, Du Bois started writing about Japan after it defeated Russia in 1904, went to China several times in the 1930s, attempting to, um, in the long run, support China's communist revolution, went back in the 1950s, um, uh, almost ended up living in Beijing at the end of his life. But <clears throat> there's a, there's a trait, you can't really understand Du Bois's evolution as a Marxist and as a, as a third world internationalist without paying attention to how central, uh, especially the Chinese revolution was to him. He basically said in the 1940s, the significance of the Chinese revolution is it should force us to put Asia at the center of our analysis of the world. And this came from somebody who had deep roots in Pan-Africanism and he was actually kind of forcing himself to understand what you might call Pan-Asianism and what the efforts of, <clears throat> of, the, of, the, of the Asian third world were going to mean across the 20th century. Um, so he was a great example for me of how somebody, somebody's Marxism and somebody's theories of social change and revolution uh, as a black thinker had to kind of pass through uh, uh, Asian history. And so I know you've written two books as well on the subject of W.E.B. Du Bois and, and his uh, encounters with, with uh, Asian, Asian radicalism, Asian revolution. Um, mm -hmm. Can you go more in depth about uh, how his perspective on this uh, kind of evolved over time? Um, mm -hmm. and I'm also very curious about the Bandung Conference, uh, the Afro-Asian Solidarity Conference in particular and his mm -hmm. perspective on it and other African-American perspectives on it um, mm -hmm. and what it possibly represented for them. Uh, as you're talking about with, with respect to Pan-Africanism um, and then this kind of emerging third worldism, uh, kind of mm -hmm. something, something nascent there. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just kind of go chronologically. I mean, Du, du Bois, uh, first started paying attention to events in Asia, as I mentioned, when Japan defeated Russia in what was kind of an inter-imperialist war over Manchuria. But he said it was the first time that a, that a non-white country had ever defeated a white country, thinking of Russia as a white country. 
and he for in the teens and 20s J du bois was really excited about japan's possible rise as a colored nation that could challenge the west and western hegemony uh, and he kind of carried that idea into the 1930s and then finally realized about the time that japan was massacring chinese in manchuria that it had its own imperialist problem and he he kind of moved off of uh, his sympathy for Japan and really kind of cast his his uh, his Marxist perspective around Mao and the Chinese Revolution. And I should say also, part of this was, you know, Du Bois's own kind of idiosyncratic Stalinism, okay, for lack of a better word. I mean, Du Bois felt so much pressure in the West during the Cold War to renounce Marxism, that he actually kind of doubled down on his support for Stalin when a lot of other people on the left, including the black left, were you know, abandoning the Soviet Union. And he did the same thing with Mao. He kind of, in a way, deified Mao in the 1950s. And again, as somebody who he thought represented a third world, non-Western, uh, uh, Marxist revolutionary approach that he felt had much to offer African-Americans, um, especially in the face of really what he, he saw as a kind of unified Western imperial hegemony, which the United States was fully part of, which extended across Latin America, across Europe, and across most of the world. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me is Du Bois in the 20s really started to pay attention to India's anti-colonial movement. He, he kind of uh, lionized Gandhi uh, in, in the 1940s. He wrote an essay and said Gandhi was, in, in his opinion, the most important person in the 20th century. That's a weird judgment, actually, if you know Gandhi's history, who can oftentimes be very anti-radical and, um, in fact, in, in, in the formation of the Indian state, you know, did a lot to repress uh, the communists left there. But, and this was part of what I meant by the Afro-Orientalism. There was a little romance sometimes for Du Bois in these Asian revolutionary figures who he didn't, I think, fully understand. But I think it was also critically important that he did take up Indian anti-colonialism and tried to write about it in the crisis and in his books to kind of spread the word to African Americans, who he felt were going, you know, the last the last place they were going to get this education was from the U.S. state, which was going to do everything it could to try to repress um, knowledge about third world revolutions, you know, in places like public schools, for example. Um, so he was a he was a you know kind of a pedagogical radical pioneer in thinking through um, the necessity for black revolutionary thought and struggle to at least take up the 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 significance of of, of asian revolutions and um he didn't go you mentioned the bandung conference and i write a chapter about that in afro-orientalism and for people who don't know it was a it was kind of a, a summit meeting between uh, african and, and asian decolonizing decolonizing countries 29 of them all together in in bandung indonesia in 1955 it was really the creation of what we now call the third world. It was African and Asian countries trying to project what they called, and Nehru called a non-aligned 
radical uh, anti-colonial independence that was in a way neither aligned with the Soviet Union or, or nor the United States. Um, China was there, India was there, Israel was not there. They were disinvited because of their occupation of Palestine, which is something we could talk about a little bit more. Uh, du Bois couldn't go to Bandung because the US had stripped him of his passport in 1951 after he was charged basically with treason for uh, his support for nuclear disarmament. Uh, so he wasn't able to attend, but the American novelist Richard Wright, who's originally from Mississippi and then goes to Chicago, joins the Communist Party, writes Native Son, which a lot of people here may know as, as probably his most famous book. He ends up leaving the US, goes to Paris in 1946 um, because he's running away from the FBI in the Cold War. And then he travels from Paris to Bandung because he wants to write about the Bandung Conference. He wants to support basically what he sees as a really important moment in third world anti-colonial struggle. Uh, and he writes this strange book called The Color Curtain, uh, which I write about in my, in my book. And he, and he kind of gets it right and he gets it wrong. I mean, on one hand, right, you know, is completely down with especially the African colonies at Bandung, like, like the Gold Coast, which becomes Ghana, uh, who are there basically to foment uh, an, an independent, unified anti-colonial movement. On the other hand, you know, he makes these strange judgments in which he says that the African countries might have to end up uh, aligning themselves or turning to the West for material support. And this has to do with Wright's own complicated relationship to the Soviet Union and Stalinism, which he is also rejecting at that time. So he's trying to figure out where, where, where are these colonies going to turn for support. So the book is, is, is brilliant in, when, in many ways, but um, uh, inflected by, you know, real Cold War political problems for people on the left, especially as they were trying to navigate Stalinism. Um, so so that's, that's why Bandung, I think, is really an important moment for me in thinking about this, what I was thinking about earlier as kind of a, a third world Marxist uh, uh, approach to decolonization. And the last thing I would say about Bandung is, I mean, it was absolutely, it was, in some ways it was a sequel to another really important conference in 1945 in Manchester, which was the Pan-African the Pan meeting, which really helped launch people like, you know, Jomo Konyata and um, Kwame Nkrumah, who were all there, into roles as leaders of African states after they returned home from London. And by the, by the 1950s, they're also present at Bandung. And of course, by about 1960, you know, the colonies are falling like dominoes, right? There's this massive, massive upsurge of, of independence. So, so people like Wright and Du Bois, for me, were important in that regard. And Manchester and Ben Dung were important events in that regard. Can you talk more about kind of the theoretical principles that come out of this meeting? So speaking about like third world Marxism or third world communism, um, or just third worldism in general, you also write about Afrocentric Marxism as well. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious also about how, how this kind of leads to uh, a more kind of like 
willingness to adopt the writings and theories of, of Mazadong in African-American radical circles like the Black Panthers, for example, um, why the revolution in China becomes more kind of, of a model for uh, other third world nations that view uh, Mao perhaps as a, a more cogent a theoretician for their own revolutions? Mm. Well, that's great. That's a great question. I mean, I think just a couple of things. Um, China makes an enormous effort after 1949 to um, build relationships with decolonizing African states. And it's very successful in doing so. Uh, I would argue that China is more successful than the Soviet Union, for example, in just the kind of diplomatic relationships with these decolonizing African states. There's also, I think, for, for some of the African states, uh, chi Mao's, China's emphasis and Mao's emphasis on the peasantry uh, really spoke obviously to agrarian economies which characterized most of the uh, African colonies in the 1940s and the 1950s. So there was this struggle around what was there going to be the relationship between the industrial proletariat and the peasantry. Um, you didn't have much of an industrial proletariat in most of the decolonizing African states, obviously, right, which has to do with, as Walter Rodney said, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Uh, so the peasantry became a really key force. And this actually, in a way, also had some appeal to Black radicals all the way through the 1960s, um, you know, Mao's emphasis on the peasantry and what what the black radicals, black Marxists thought of as the lumpen proletariat, some of that they thought resonated more so with Maoism, self-activity uh, from below, rather than what had been the Soviet trajectory of a of a more heavily industrialized proletariat being the leading force in the revolution. And, uh, and so in the 1960s, you know, you have in both Africa and the United States, Maoism, uh, I would argue, plays a really key role in what, it, in what is becoming third world Marxism, third world Marxism, which is really foregrounding the role of the peasantry, the role of the lumpen. Um, and, you know, to be honest, color was a part of this, you know? The fact that the Chinese were not white and that the, and that the Soviets were, I think began to you know, register differently as, a, as, a, uh, as part of national liberation theory in, by the 1960s, right? I mean, in a very practical way, in 1963, you know, Matt, Robert, there's a man named Robert F. Williams I write about in Afro-Orientalism, who was a NAACP organizer who gets chased out of the country by the, by, the, by the FBI, goes to Canada, goes to Cuba, supports Castro and the revolution. And while he's in Cuba, has a radio program which he broadcasts back to the United States. He's an early black power theorist. Um, he was, he's basically arguing for black self-defense, which by the way, also dovetails nicely with all of Maoism's emphasis on guerrilla strategy and, you know, Power comes from the barrel of a gun. And Williams also begins to write letters to Mao from Cuba saying, will you please put out a statement 
in solidarity with the black liberation struggle. And lo and behold, Mao does it. You know, he writes this statement and publishes it and circulates it. It means quite a lot to black revolutionaries, you know, when the leader of the <laughs> Chinese Communist Party um, uh, sends a solidarity signal, right? And um, uh, so that, that kind of triangulation of people like Williams, who by the way, then goes to China and lives in Beijing as a guest of the Chinese state, while he's also writing, publishing a newspaper called The Crusader, writing these favorable articles about the Chinese revolution, sending them back to the United States where they're being digested by groups like the Republic of New Africa, which are a fundamentally black nationalist groups who think that Chinese nationalism is closer to what they think of as liberatory nationalism for themselves. Uh, so, so kind of a long answer to your question, I'm trying to lay out some of the coordinates that I was trying to get out in my book in, in thinking about what shape sort of um, third world Marxism took and why it took it. No, it's very fascinating. I, I have heard the story of, of Robert F. Williams before and it's very interesting. And I wonder mm -hmm. also to kind of relate this, like, so I, I'm curious about the concept specifically um, of, of it being an Afro-Orientalism. So Orientalism mm -hmm. as a, as a post-colonial tradition uh, and yeah. then the idea of, of hybridity adding into this, like in your, in studying this example of kind of like a multicultural solidarity, how much did an idea like hybridity and fusion kind of come into it? Yeah, I, I ended up coming up with an idea, a, a phrase in my, in Afro-Orientalism described Afro-Asian solidarity. I called it strategic anti-essentialism. I was actually riffing off of Gayatri Spivak's idea of strategic essentialism, where she says, "In some, if I'm in a political protest for the third world, I'm a third world, third wilder. If I'm in a feminist protest, I'm a woman. I'm strategically essentialist about my identity." And I kind of playfully suggested that Afro-Orientalism was this, was an anti-essentialism, where the idea was to find historical material solidarities of of peoples, but not of races or identities. So maybe, you know, maybe close to this understanding would be kind of like what Vijay Prashad calls polyculturalism. When he talks about Lisa Yoon's book, wrote, wrote this great book called How the Coolie Speaks. You have all these examples of, of African and Chinese uh, indentured laborers rising up together against Cuban slavery in, in the 19th century, right? So, so for me, if you crack open the slave trade and the coolie trade, and then you start to lay over that the history of the colonization of Africa and Asia, you have all kinds of reasons for Afro-Orientalism. You have all kinds of reasons to sort of think about global solidarity between oppressed third world peoples um, and specifically in this case, uh, uh, Africans and Asians as a really important thread in the, in the, in the history of the modern world, right? Um, so that's why I kind of zeroed in on it uh, as, as uh, 
as, as in a way as a kind of a hidden transcript of you know of the rise of capitalism in the western world yeah, that's very fascinating and i'm curious as well with with the idea of afro-orientalism um how much it extends to so i think like what we've been talking about so far has predominantly been been what we think of as like east asia but i wonder also with what we i guess in the west think of as middle west east asia a uh, west <laughs> right. asia, yeah exactly or, <laughs> right um or yeah like what or when i guess is like the, the acronym that has been used instead of the middle east um yep. so i think that is a way we can segue into talking about solidarity with palestine and this is something that i think a lot of people have become aware of the historical connections between uh black radicals and uh and palestinian activists or just uh activists in in west asia in general so kind of uh arab african solidarity i wonder also like how much this theory of uh of afro-orientalism as well as the strategic non-essentialism as you call it plays into this solidarity between um the arab world pan-arabism and pan-africanism uh mm -hmm. in this kind of constructing the third world mm -hmm. It's a really good question. I mean, I think in my in the work in Afro-Orientalism and in the work I did with Fred Ho on Afro-Asia, we mainly did focus on East Asia and South Asia. And I it wasn't until after we'd done all of that work that I actually began to think about the question you're thinking about, which is, well, obviously places like Palestine and what the US calls the Middle East are, if you're in East Asia, referred to as West Asia, right? Originally part of a, of a Western Asian uh, geosphere. And what drew, when I was doing my research on, let's go, go back to Du Bois for a second. Um, du Bois, like a lot of black radicals in the 1940s was a big supporter of the state of Israel when it was came into creation in 1948. It was actually seen as a, uh, progressive effort to give a, an oppressed diasporic people a homeland. Du Bois actually said, well, we need one too, right? It sort of resonated with this idea of a displaced people. But interestingly, by the 1950s, you know, uh, in 1955, uh, France, uh, uh, France, England, and Israel team up to try to take the Suez Canal away from uh, from Egypt, right? And um, this is the rise of Nasserism. This is actually the key moment in which Egyptian nationalism uh, begins to, you know, militate against the European presence. Du Bois does does a flip over, and he says, "Man, all that support, that love I was giving to Israel was wrong, right?" So, first time in his career, he begins to think about what you might call the the Arab revolutionary struggle as something that he needs to incorporate into his own kind of matrix of, of thinking. Well, in the 1950s, there are other black uh, radicals in the US and uh, in the diaspora who begin a similar trajectory of what, I, what you would maybe, what you've called and I would call Afro-Arab solidarity. And um, obviously Nasser is a huge hero actually in black communities because Let's face Egypt is part of Africa, right? It's the long, it's a long forgotten part of Africa because 
the Western world has done so much to try to segregate North African history from sub, some sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, uh, Nasserism and the, the first Arab Spring of the 1950s begins to draw African-American radicals and anti-colonialist attention. And um, Du Bois would be one of them. And this is also the story I tell about James Baldwin. I mean, Baldwin's kind of famous for leaving the United States and going to Paris. And there's a kind of glib stereotype of Baldwin who becoming this sort of, I don't know, bohemian writer in Paris. But one of the things that really influences Baldwin is the Algerian revolution. He's in Paris in 1954 when the Algerian independence struggle begins. He's watching He's watching Arab Algerians being shot on the streets by the French police, right? As he's, in 1955, he goes to jail one night. He's falsely accused of stealing a a bedsheet. And he's in a Paris jail and he looks around and he says, everybody looks like me. They're all from Tunisia and Algeria. They're all North Africans. And he he has this brilliant, writes this brilliant essay later on in the early 1970s, he says, I really began to understand that if, if, in order to understand my own life history in the Western world, I had to understand Arab history. We were both basically what he called about himself, bastards of the West. We were both in effect colonial subjects, right? And he's now he's beginning as a displaced American in France, beginning to actually identify with the colonial other, the, the, colonial, the colonial subaltern. And um, in, his, in his writings in Paris in the 50s, he begins to write fictional and non-fictional pieces about the Algerian struggle. Um, in the 1960s, uh, he draws really close to the Black Panther Party. And the Panthers are the, the Panthers and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, are the first two Black uh, left organizations to publicly support Palestine. And they both argue correctly, that Israel was a colonial project, right? That it was essentially the, the, the French, British, and Americans trying to, one, get, gain a foothold in the Middle East against the Arab world, and two, you know, Baldwin understood Israel as an anti-Semitic project. He said this was, this was like the Western world offloading its Jews to some place so they, so they wouldn't have to have them around anymore. So by the late 60s, you see Baldwin you know, including discussion of Palestine and, and the and the occupation uh, of, of Israel, as he says, it's as important to us as the Cuban Revolution. It's as as, as important as African liberation. Um, in effect, he kind of conjoins Pan Arabism <laughs> into his own political analysis, and he's also really powerful. I recommend for people who are looking at black writing on Zionism. You know, there's a there's a there's a wing of black nationalism which has always had a bit of romance about Zionism because there is like something called black Zionism. We, we, even even Rastafarianism is a is a black Zionist ideology about homeland. So it took a lot of work for Baldwin to kind of cut against the grain of Zionism and understand it as a settler colonial ideology. And um, my favorite book of his probably on this is a book called No Name in the Street, which he wrote in 1972. And this is where he basically argues that any real anti-imperialist politics uh, in the West has to be 
as as strongly against the U.S. war in Vietnam as as, as it is against Israel's colonization of Palestine. So, for me, that was a a hugely important thread, not just in Baldwin's life, but in recasting an Afro-Arab solidarity, which obviously, you know, came back really powerfully, you know, around the time of like, say, Ferguson, if you remember. I mean, there were all these folks, that's when Israel was bombing Gaza and uh, the National Guard was like, you know, trying to shoot black people in Ferguson. And <laughs> you had all these, you had people in Palestine tweeting out their support for black for black liberation in, in the United States. So um, I, I started working on Bald, that Baldwin book around that time. And I was drawn to Baldwin's politics as a subject because they were like so perfectly aligned with what was going on in the world um, around 2014-2015. That's a bit long answer to your question, but I hope that answers it. No, that was a fantastic answer. And I, I'd love to go more into it. I mean, pretty much everything you said answered that question with respect to uh, Ferguson, which I think is the watershed moment for a lot of people. And then mm. especially recently in, in 2020 and 2021, when you have 2020, the killing of George Floyd and the protests mm. afterwards, and then 2021, another war against Gaza, that certainly I saw that on my own college campus, and I think a lot of people saw that here in the right. US, uh, this, in, this intense solidarity born out of uh, an increased radicalization from 2020. So I'm, I'm curious more about, I guess my next question would honestly be where the future of this solidarity goes from here. And I know a lot has been said about uh, China's relationship with, with African nations. Um, that is certainly a field uh, of study, I guess, on kind of a similar note about the continued solidarity with, with uh, China as kind of the leading nation in Asia right now. And, and uh, just from studying pre predominantly uh, Africa and, and reading more about China and Africa and their relationship, um, you do see a lot of um, people on in African nations who have this preference for China over the West. But then just with respect to more overtly like radical organizations and also to coming, you know, outside of, of the African continent into the diaspora, I guess, where do you see the solidarity going? Um, and then also, of course, I guess the very important part of that is solidarity uh, with Palestine. Where is that kind of heading? Um, mm. and, and particularly now, like recently, I was, I was uh, studying and reading more about the Pan-African solidarity for Palestine. Uh, with the, there's a big debate on the African continent right now about Israel's observer status in the African Union, and that there's been a big mm. movement to kind of end that. So I see that as a very, very, particularly in South Africa, where support for Palestine is very, very high. That's like a mm. very important political issue. So I'm curious about where where you see this kind of heading in the future. I think you know, for myself a couple of places that we have to continue to look for solidarity. One, one would be Palestine, which I think since, since the 1970s has the, the, the boycott divestment sanctions movement, to take one example, which as you know, was modeled on the campaign against South Africa, has been a tremendous force for global solidarity. There's hardly a country in the world 
even in Europe, you know, which doesn't have a strong BDS movement. And BDS is really important. It's about bringing down a settler colonial imperial state, which is entirely funded by the United States. If you are for BDS, you are against Western imperialism. You're against Zionism as racism. You are for national self-determination struggle. Palestine, in my opinion, is, is, is one of the most important and remaining national liberation struggles <clears throat> to this day. Palestinians still don't have a state. They're like the Rohingya, right? They're a stateless people. So it's a hugely important for me place to draw as a, as a Marxist and as an anti-imperialist to draw, to draw energy to, to still. I think that's really important. I mean, I think the second <clears throat> thing, I have been involved in some anti-fascist organizing the last few years. And I think anti-fascist organizing is really an important uh, uh, place for global solidarity making. Again, neoliberalism has brought these monstrous authoritarian states into place around the world. Um, uh, Hungary, Poland, um, Trumpism, for what, whatever you want, however you want to characterize it, Bolsonaro, Duterte, right? Um, and then you've got, you know, in places like France, which is elections are coming up, uh, the National Front, which is, you know, historically an openly fascist party, came pretty close to winning in the last general election. I don't think the reign of uh, uh, the reign of neo-fascist states is over. And I think what's so important about opposing them is to oppose them is to oppose <clears throat> the capitalism which which substantiates all of these states. It's to oppose their imperial tendencies that authoritarian states nearly always display. I mean, the National Front in France will, will not, won't even recognize that France ever held colonies in Africa. Part of its fascist erasure is to completely uh, mitigate, right? histories of oppression and liberation struggle. So to me, anti-fascist anti organizing is the way for people across the left spectrum to organize for um, democracy from below, uh, to oppose racism, to oppose imperialism, to oppose capitalism. So that's a second front. I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, I mean, to go to go into a different terrain, <clears throat> I think it's I think it's pretty terrifying right now the the uphill battle that people face to protect reproductive rights in in the United States, and I think the 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 misogy the misogyny of the far right dovetails perfectly with <clears throat> the agenda of the Republican Party to try to destroy abortion. I mean, state by state, that's really what we're seeing right now. We know that the Supreme Court nomination process is, is, is always about that. Um, I think we desperately need uh, a, a grassroots, wide, deeply rooted um, uh, struggle around reproductive justice in the United States and globally. And there have been outside of the US and places like Poland and Brazil, especially really, really powerful, successful <coughs> feminist socialist movements to protect abortion rights. 
we really need a version of that here. I, I say that without, you know, being being somebody who's organizing it. But I think it's a terrain that has kind of gotten uh, lost a little bit because of all of the other sort of political atrocities that have been coming down, some of which we've been talking about today. But I feel like it's a really critical um, space. Yeah, thanks so much for that answer. And I think the last thing I'd, I'd like to talk about is, so with that being kind of the future horizon, looking a little bit backwards is the the legacy today. How do you think that the reemergence of, of, just to take the example of the Bandung conference has like really reemerged in people's consciousness and thinking about, also thinking about criticisms made of uh, the third world or the non-aligned movement, uh, to think of like Vijay Prashad, who you mentioned earlier, his criticisms of the non-aligned movement um, in his book, The Darker Nations. What do you mm -hmm. think the reflection on the Bandung conference and on this kind of uh, Afro-Asian solidarity has been and, and also the, the, the shortcomings of it that haven't fully um, addressed like some of the problems yeah. that, that can help us think better about what we mean by third worldism or a third world is right. <clears throat> well I, I think you know it's important to for me to remember that the very existence of third world non-aligned politics depended upon socialism as a viable political force in the world since 1989 socialism has been a deracinated political force in the world um, the collapse of the soviet bloc had something to do with this the kind of hegemony of neoliberal politics had something to do with this. I think if we're going to restore, let, let's call it alternatives to capitalism, which I think is what Bandung and and the Pan-African movement uh, signified, we actually have to fundamentally restore our critique of capitalism. And what I mean by that is we have to uh, we have to grapple with the, the the shortcomings of 20th century socialism as a as a as a world movement that includes Stalinism it includes weaknesses in third world Marxism which you know I would I wouldn't say that that's where we should begin I think third world Marxism like like third world colonies were always um, under the gun to 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 try to just survive uh, for me the 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 bigger problem in front of us is how do we break through the consensus around capitalism as as margaret thatcher put it in the 1980s you know that system to which there is no alternative we're still we're still i think as 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 marxists and as socialists freighted with that problem and one part of that problem and this has been, I think, discussed by a lot of other people, is the, you know, the victories of reformist socialism or democratic socialism or social democracy, including, for example, in the United States, the, the emergence of the democratic socialists of America, which is fundamentally a reformist party and not a revolutionary party. Um, I'm, I'm a member of the DSA, so I can tell you all about its, its strengths and weaknesses from inside. But it, it clearly is not, a, it's, it, is a, it is not a sufficient political response to the challenges that we face right now. 
And we see this constantly with, you know, members, members of the DSA, um, especially elected members to Congress like Jamal Bowman, um, who have, you know, sold out the left on really important issues like Palestine, just to take, take an example, right? So I think there needs to be, just to talk about the United States for a minute, I think we need a really major socialist regroupment, which can bring together some of the best of our traditions. I, I was for a while part of the Trotskyist tradition in the United States and the ISO, which collapsed. Um, we, need to, we need to draw together people now working in small, small socialist uh, groupings into a, a, a major conversation about how we unify forces. How do we rethink the, the, the failures of, of Marxists and Marxist organizations in the 20th century and in the 21st century? Um, and there are people out there doing this work. I mean, there's like the Tempest Collective, there's, um, there's the Spectre Journal, there's, you know, there are, and there are, there are, <clears throat> maybe the other thing to say about this is there has, that we have not sorted out a way yet <clears throat> in the 21st century to kind of re-theorize Marxism through the lens of racial capitalism and movements like Black Lives Matter. And that's a huge challenge. You know, my comrade Sean Larson wrote a, an interesting essay a while ago about what he called abolitionist socialism. <clears throat> how, how do we how do we effectively draw uh, the best of the prison abolition, anti-racist, grassroots organizing that's you know an American tradition that's as old as the abolitionist movement against slavery? How do we think through? socialism as a political uh, practice and idea um, through that particular lens. I'm really sympathetic to this question because to go back to the beginning, I've always been trying to figure out how <clears throat> subaltern Marxists, you know, or subalterns who are uh, trying to use Marxism can put it in the service of their struggle. And this was really, I think that the, the calling card of the third world, you know, uh, I think it was Césaire who said, you know, Marxism needs to be in the service of people of color, not people of color in the service of Marxism. It's that's a really too easy binary, but it's still with us, right? It's still with us when we when we look at let's say the relationship between the Democratic Socialists of America, which is a mostly white socialist organization, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, those two movements <clears throat> have run on parallel but almost never intersecting tracks in the US the last you know five years, despite the fact that both of them reached peak popularity, right? And you had more white people out on the streets during the Black Lives Matter movement, which you know the New York Times says is the biggest civil rights protest movement in history. I think 26 million people participated. <clears throat> Huge numbers of white people wanting to be anti-racist. And that's like really exciting, right? That, that doesn't happen in America very often. How do we capture, theorize, mobilize that moment of interracial longing for some kind of alternative, you know, to racial capitalism? <clears throat> to me, that's a huge, important question that I, I'm trying to work on in my own in my own small quarter, but I think a lot of other people are trying to think about as well.
Well, thank you so much for for taking some time to talk to me about about your work and and on these questions, which I I think too are super important and are not considered enough at all by the left in in the West in general. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate. It. I really like your work, and uh, it's it's always really interesting for me to read. And I think uh, for me particularly as well, the you know support for Palestine is like a, very much a litmus test for um, the left, and it should be. Um, so I think it's when it's not considered essential, then it gets very frustrating, and it's hard to kind of find myself in the same camp as as people who don't take it that seriously. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I, I don't want to take any more of your time. And uh, if you have anything else you want, to, any last things to add, then we can. And then, yeah. No, just I really appreciate the chance to talk about all these really important things. I really value the work that uh, your collective is doing and uh, wish you all the support and uh, hope we can work together again sometime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Take care. Have a good day. Awesome. Bye.